Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Your Bible's in John chapter 1. It's a long chapter. There's 50. We are still in John chapter 1. It's a long chapter. There's 51 verses. But we're going to finish John chapter 1 this morning as we continue to see Jesus in action. Charles Spurgeon has said this, if you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, you should not be allowed into heaven. So some of you need to bone up on reading the greatest book next to the Bible, The Pilgrim's Progress, but there is a great scene towards the end of that famous book. Christian and hopeful are the two characters, and they've been thrown into Doubting Castle. And in Doubting Castle, this giant called Despair beats them mercilessly. Basically, they're left for dead there, and they want to give up. They want to commit suicide, really, because they're so discouraged. And Christian remembers that he was given a key called Promise. And the key promise is able to open any trouble that he's in, and the the promise is the gospel. And so they get out of Doubting Castle, they escape the clutches of giant despair, and they end up going to a place called the Delectable Mountains, where they are revived by these four shepherds that give them food, give them drink. And then the shepherds take them up on the top of this mountain, and the mountain is called Clear. And they're given what's called a perspective glass. Now, we don't really know what a perspective glass is, probably some type of of telescope or something like that. But they're told to look through the perspective glass, and what they see out in the distance is heaven, the celestial city. And their eyes are open to the glories of what just awaits them because they're at the tail end of their life, and they know that what awaits every believer is being able to see Jesus. And so as they have this vision from Mountain Clear, they're energized, they're excited, they're ready to go on because they've had their vision enlarged to what truly matters, Jesus and His glory in heaven. You know, there's something powerful about having our eyes open to our future. There's something very powerful about seeing the glories of Christ. And really that's what my prayer is for all of us this morning is that by God's grace and by God's power, we would have the eyes to see Jesus and all of his glory this morning. On the pages of scripture, as we go through the gospel of John, and that as you see Jesus, it wouldn't just stop at seeing him, But as you see him as he truly is, your heart would be inflamed to worship him. Your heart would be inflamed to serve him. Your heart would be inflamed to obey him. Just like we sang earlier, we'd give him our all. We'd hold nothing back from following and serving our great king. If you remember last week, what did John the Baptist tell us? He said, behold, stop, look, pay attention. There's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He called us to see, to stop. And this whole idea of seeing plays a very important role as we continue through chapter 1 of John's gospel. 
Come and see this Jesus. So let's read together John chapter 1, verses 35 through the end. This is the first time we really see Jesus in action, his words, and the calling of the first disciples. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus and walked by and said, this is the second time, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How did you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of man. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 18, that we looked at a few weeks ago. It says that Jesus has made God known. Jesus has exegeted God. Jesus has fully disclosed who God is. And that's what's going on here. We are called here to see Jesus. That The word see shows up over and over again in this passage of Scripture. So here's the big idea. This is all about following Jesus. It's all about the calling of the first disciples. Here's what it means for us. Before we can pledge allegiance to Jesus, we must see him as he truly is. And that should be up on your screen. Before we can pledge allegiance to Jesus, we must see him as he truly is. We've got to see him. We've got to have our minds open to who he is. And I've said this week in and week out. This is just a different way of saying it. Our culture is very confused about who Jesus is. A lot of confusion. And so in order for us to worship the true Jesus, in order for us to pledge allegiance to the true Jesus, in order for us to know how to follow the true Jesus, we need to know who the true Jesus is. 
Not something we've made up in our mind, not something that culture has told us, but who Jesus truly is as revealed in the pages of Scripture. And so what we do here is we see the word see or come and see about seven times in this passage of Scripture. So seeing Jesus is very important. Come and see. So what are we supposed to see? Well, what we see unfold before us are six, six descriptions of Jesus that we're called to come and see. So I want to invite you into the scriptures this morning to come and see these six things about Jesus. What is the first that we see about Jesus? And ultimately, remember, seeing is leading us to believe and to follow and to serve and to obey. Here's the first thing we see. First of all, we see Jesus as the identity changer. Now, you may think, what in the world does it mean that Jesus is the identity changer? Well, look at verse 38. Jesus turns around and he sees these disciples following him. And he's like, what are you guys looking for? What are you guys seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where where are you staying? We want to know where you're staying. And what does Jesus say to them? Come and you will come and see. Come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And then you've got this whole idea of Andrew going and getting his brother, Simon Peter, and they find the Messiah. And then in verse 42, Jesus looks at Peter and basically says, Peter, you're actually called Simon, son of John. I'm changing your name. I'm going to change your name. Anybody here would like to have their name changed? Just randomly? Who has the power to change your name? You're no longer Tarina. You're Tina. No, that's Tina. You're no longer Tina. I mean, who has the power to change anybody's name? Nobody has the power. But Jesus comes up and looks Simon Peter straight in the eye and says, You're no longer Simon Peter. I'm changing your name. Your name is now going to be Peter, which means rock. That's ironic, isn't it? What do we know about Peter from the rest of the New Testament? He's impetuous. He likes to put his foot in his mouth. He's always getting in trouble. He denies Jesus three times and let Jesus says, you're going to be the rock. As a matter of fact, Peter, I'm changing your identity to the rock. Your confession is what I'm going to build my church upon. Not some type of pope or something like that, but Peter's confession. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 16, 15 through 18, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to build his church based upon Peter's confession. He said to him, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter, I'm changing your name, and I'm going to build my church on your confession that I'm the Christ. Now, here's the beautiful thing that happens when you become a follower of Jesus. He changes your name. He changes your identity. You go from being dead in your sins. You go from being an enemy of God. You go from being an outsider to being a child of God, to being adopted into his family. Jesus comes and makes you a brand new person. He changes your identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Great news. 
You are new if you're in Christ. You have a new identity. Where was your old identity? Paul tells us in Colossians 1, 13-14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here's what Jesus does in your salvation. He takes you as being hopeless and helpless and hell-bound and in your sin and guilty, and he takes you out of all that, and he puts you into a new family. He gives you a new identity. He puts a new spirit within you. You're a brand new person. You're no longer in darkness. You're in the kingdom of light. He changes your identity, and that's a great thing because now you're a child of God. And that's what Jesus does to Peter. He looks Peter straight in the eye and says, I'm changing your name. If you're a Christian here this morning, Jesus has done the same to you. He's looked you straight in the eye and says, I've changed your name. You're no longer sinner. You're my child. Now, some of you may not have had that transformation take place yet. And I would say, what are you waiting for? Look and see. Jesus, come and see him. Come and see the one who has the power, the authority to change your identity right here today. To take you out of your sin and make you a new person. So that's the first thing we see about Jesus. He's the great identity changer. He changes your identity. Second, we see Jesus as the demander of allegiance. This gets a little bit scary for those of us that want control. Notice verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him two very powerful words, follow me. Follow me. Now, you don't get this in your English translations, but in the Greek text, it first of all is a command. Follow me. Command. Not a suggestion. Jesus is not offering you suggestion or advice. He's commanding it. Follow me. Secondly, it's in the present tense, which means keep on continually as a lifestyle following me. You must follow me, which means continual action, which means that it's not just a one-time decision where, hey, I'm going to kind of try Jesus on for sizes. No, I'm going to pledge my allegiance to him, and I'm going to follow him as a lifestyle because he has the right to command it. I've given this illustration many, many times before. It doesn't come from me. It comes from our friend um, Artaxerdia, who's preached here before. It's this whole idea that when God, uh, through Jesus Christ, calls you, When he calls you to follow him, it's not an invitation that you can politely decline. You see, when you get an invitation in the mail to a birthday party or to a graduation party, you can look at that invitation and say, you know what, I've got, uh, you know, I've got better things to do. I'm going to politely decline. I'm invited to this, but I'm not going to go. No harm, no foul. I just decided I'm not going to go. What happens if you get a jury summons in the mail? Can you do the same thing? I don't really think I want to go. Now, there's an authority behind the jury summons. If you don't go, you're in violation of the law. When Jesus says, follow me, he's not giving you a little suggestion to take or leave. He's saying, listen, it's a summons from the king, and to disobey is to defy the king. Follow me with your life, all of you, all of ourselves, constantly. He's the demander of allegiance. Listen to how Jesus says this in Luke chapter 9. 23 through 25. Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. Now, in our culture, we don't understand what that means. People will throw around terms like, well, you know, this is kind of my cross to bear. I've got bunions or something. I mean, it's something like, you know, it's not a big thing. I mean, if you have bunions, I'm sorry. Maybe it is a cross for you to bear. But we, we take these little things like, well, that's my cross to bear. The early century would not understand it that way. When you take up your cross, what it meant was the cross was a symbol of death. To the Jew, if you hung on a cross, it meant you were forsaken by God. You were under God's curse. To the Gentile mind, to the Greek mind, if you were hanging on a cross, you were a worst of criminals. So the cross is an instrument of death. And what Jesus is saying is, you've got to identify with my death and pick that up and be willing to die every day to yourself. Die to your wishes. Die to your desires and follow me. Make sacrifices for me. Take up your cross and follow me. Which means one of the true markers of a Christian is suffering for the name of Christ. When was the last time your Christianity cost you anything? When was the last time it cost you anything? You know, we're pretty comfortable and cushy here in America. It doesn't really cost us much. But Jesus says, I demand your all. I'm the, I'm the demander of your allegiance. Follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. So number one, he's the identity changer. Number two, he's the demander of allegiance. What's the third thing we see? Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. Now notice when when Philip goes and, and, and finds Jesus and follows him, he goes and he, he gets his, his friend Nathaniel there in verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's basically saying to his friend Nathaniel, Listen, all those prophecies... All the things that Moses talked about in, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Amos, all the prophecies, everything that the Old Testament was talking about, we found him. All of those fulfillments of prophecy are now coming true in this very specific man, this Jesus of Nazareth, who had to be born under the lineage of David to Joseph from Bethlehem, growing up in Nazareth. Back in verse 41. Andrew says to his brother Peter, we found the Messiah, the Messiah. Do you know what Messiah means? It means anointed one, one who was anointed. Let me just give you a little bit of trivia about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were three offices of people that were anointed, set apart for God. The prophets were anointed, the speakers of God's word. The priests were anointed, those who gave the sacrifices. And the kings were anointed. Prophets, priests, kings were all anointed. But there was not one person in the Old Testament who fulfilled all three of those roles simultaneously. There never was a prophet who was a priest or a prophet who was a king or a king who was a priest. Nobody ever fulfilled all three of those functions. But Jesus, as the Messiah, does. He is the prophet. Why? He is the very word of God. He's the priest. Not only is he the one who offers the sacrifices, he's the sacrifice himself, and he's the king. He's the prophet, the priest, and the king. 
Later on in John's gospel, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for not understanding who he is. And, and we'll get to this eventually. I don't have time to unpack it. But just notice what Jesus says in John 5, 39 through 40. He's talking to the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Old Testament scriptures, what Jesus is saying is all of the Old Testament points to me. Do you realize there are over 400 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that came true in his coming? 400. And so he's the fulfillment of prophecy. All of the Old Testament points to the coming Messiah. Do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus as the one who changes your identity? Do you see Jesus as the one that demands your allegiance? Do you see him as the fulfillment of, of prophecy? Here's the fourth thing. We see Jesus as the seer into hearts. Now, this bit of information about Jesus being prophesied as coming from Nazareth doesn't really impress Nathaniel. <laughs> what does he say? Verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What's the big deal? So what? Come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How did you know me? Jesus said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus was able at a distance to look into Nathanael's heart and say, Listen, Nathanael, you're a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Now you may think, why did he say that? What's this deal about being a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit? Okay, trivia question. What's the one Old Testament character whose name means deceit? Wednesday night, Hebrews class. We just talked about it last week. Who is it? Jacob. Jacob's name means deceiver, right? He's deceiver, heel grabber. What was Jacob's name changed to? Israel. There is no Israelite in whom I found, uh, you're a true Israelite in whom I found no deceit. Jesus is making an allusion back to the story of Jacob. This whole idea that Jacob was a deceiver. What did God do with Jacob? God changed Jacob's name. He changed his name from deceiver to Israel. Same way he changed Peter's name. And so Jesus is able to peer into the heart of Nathanael and realize that he didn't have ulterior motives. Jesus can look into his mind, look into his heart. Nothing's hidden from Jesus. And by the way, there is a common myth in our culture that you can pretty much do whatever you want. There's no consequences and nobody's watching as long as I don't hurt anybody. It's a myth. Jesus sees everything we do. Nothing is hidden from his sight. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 4.13 says this. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Now, on two fronts, that can be, they can bring two different responses. Jesus sees everything. That can be really scary for you this morning. And it should be. Or it can be very comforting. Jesus sees everything. He can see the depths of my heart. He understands he knows, he can empathize, he cares about me deeply. He's not a distant God. 
He's an afar-off God. He knows what's going on in the deepest recesses of my heart. Do you realize nobody else knows what's going on in your heart right now? I can't peer into any of your hearts. Only God knows what's going into your hearts, and it doesn't scare him. Some of you are scared to share your hearts with other people because you're afraid if I bear my heart and people see who I truly am, that is very vulnerable. I would never do that. There's one person that already knows your heart, and it doesn't scare him. As a matter of fact, he can change your heart. Listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 139, 1 through 3. Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. You know me. You're acquainted. What's the fifth thing we see about Jesus? He is, number five, the king of Israel. The king of Israel. After Jesus peers into Nathanael's heart and, and exposes him for who he is, this really gets Nathanael's attention. And what does he say there? In verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. This is a, a confession of Jesus' absolute sovereignty as king. Yes, he's the lamb of God who takes away our sins, but he's also the king. He's the king lamb. He's the lion lamb. He's the king who has ultimate rights over our life. He's also savior. He's savior and Lord, not savior. And if I want to make him Lord later on in my life, savior and Lord. You cannot divide Jesus up. There's a lot of people that like Jesus as their savior. If I were to go out today into Sterling or Northeastern Colorado and say, hey, do you want to get out of hell free card and have all your sins forgiven and, and never have to worry about being held accountable for your sins? Would you want that? Sure, I don't want to go to hell. Cool, I want to be forgiven. Oh, by the way, let me add something to that. Do you want to surrender all your rights, take up your cross daily, follow Jesus as the ultimate Lord of your life, and bow allegiance to him for the rest of your life as sovereign king? No, thank you. I like the forgiveness part, but I don't like the king part. You can't chop up Jesus. You can't take him as your Savior and not your Lord. He, he won't allow you to do that. He is Savior and Lord. A.W. Tozer says, you can't have a half Christ. A half Christ, let me just read the quote here to make sure I get it. The Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. He will not divide his offices. You cannot believe in a half Christ. We take him for what he is, the anointed Savior and Lord, who's King of kings and Lord of lords. He would not be who he is if he saved us and called us and chose us without understanding that he can also control our lives. You can't take a half Jesus. A lot of people like the half Jesus. I like the half of Jesus where he walks around and he's non-threatening and he tells me to love each other and he's kind of a cool guru teacher and he really doesn't demand anything from me. Let's just all love and get along. I like that Jesus. I like the Jesus that forgives me, but I don't like the King Jesus. I don't like the true Jesus. Do you realize that the true Jesus is coming back one day on a white horse? And here's how it's described in the book of Revelation. This is the Jesus with whom we all must deal at the end of the time the end of the days. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Is this the Jesus you're seeing this morning? Is your vision clouded by a half Jesus? Or do you see the full Jesus, the one whose Savior 
and Lord, the King of Israel, who's coming back on a white horse to rule and to reign? Have you bowed your knee to this King? Have you submitted to Him as the Lord of your life? So, number one, Jesus is the changer of identities. Number two, he's the demander of allegiance. Come follow me. Number three, he's the fulfillment of prophecy. Number four, he's the seer into your hearts. Number five, he's the king of Israel. But here's number six. Jesus is the only way to heaven. Now, now how do you get this? Now, obviously, Jesus says this later on in the Gospel of John, but notice what happens. Look at verse 50. Jesus tells Nathanael, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. You're going to see greater things than me just looking into your heart. You're going to see greater things than me just reading your mind. What are these things that these disciples are going to see? Well, he answers it for us in verse 51. And you may think, well, this is very strange. Verse 51, here's what they're going to see. You will see, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What in the world does that mean? I have no idea what that means, the apostles are saying. Okay, who did Jesus just introduce earlier? Jacob. Back in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob's on the run from his brother Esau. And he goes and he sleeps out one night in a place called Bethel, puts a a rock down as his pillow. And do you remember Jacob had a dream? And what was Jacob's dream that he saw? In Genesis chapter 28, verse 12, it says this. As he's camping out alone, Jacob, in whom there is no deceit, the true Israelite, he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and on the top of it reached to heaven And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Hmm. Interesting image. There is a ladder to heaven. The very threshold of heaven is being opened. And on this ladder are angels going down and angels coming up. That's what Jacob sees in his dream. They're ascending and descending on this ladder to come down from heaven. Now, later on, God tells Jacob, you're going to be blessed like your grandfather Abraham and like your father Isaac. You're going to have the promised land. You're going to have numerous descendants. But notice what Jacob says after he wakes up in Genesis 28, 16 through 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. What did Jacob see? The house of God, Bethel. The house of God, the gate of heaven. Jacob saw the very gate of heaven open with a ladder coming down with angels ascending and descending. Now, go to what Jesus says. Jesus reinterprets that and says, listen. What Jacob saw in his dream was a foreshadowing of who I am. I am the only way to heaven. I ascended from heaven down so that you can ascend back up to heaven and there's only one door, there's only one ladder, there's only one staircase, there's only one opening. It's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the only way you get there. Jesus is saying, I came down from heaven and I'm the only way to get back to heaven. That's what you're going to see. You are going to see Jesus as the only way to get to God. And he says that later on in John. John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way the truth, 
and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. But you see, our people, people in our culture don't want to believe that. They, they don't want to say Jesus is the only way. They'll say Jesus is a way. They may even say he's a good way, but not the only way. What does Jesus say about himself? We don't have to put words in his mouth. He tells us. Let me give you a quote from somebody that you may know. Here's what this person said, and I'll tell you who it is after I tell you the quote. Quote, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way to God. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to you to what you call God. Oprah Winfrey. Stephen Colbert claims to be a Christian. He's Roman Catholic, late night host. Here's what he said. He says, quote, Though I am a committed Christian, I believe everyone has a right to their own religion. Be you Hindu, Jewish, or Muslim, I believe there are infinite paths to accepting Jesus as your personal Savior. Infinite paths. What does Jesus have to say about that? I'm the only doorway. I'm the only ladder. I came down from heaven, and I'm the only way to get back to heaven. Acts 4.12 says this. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved so the question is all throughout this message that that these disciples are seeing it's come and see come and see come and see this jesus come and see so the question i've got to ask you is okay you've shown up this morning you've come do you see do you see Now, there's two ways you can respond this morning to a message like this. The first is, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation, today is the day of salvation. The Bible says, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. You have seen him. You've seen him as the identity changer. You've seen him as the one that says to follow me. You've seen him as the fulfillment of prophecy. You've seen him as the one that looks into your heart. You've seen him as the king. You've seen him as the only way to heaven. So today, what you need to do is you need to come and see and take it one step further than just seeing. You need to believe. You need to trust. You need to repent. You need to give him your all today. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ alone for salvation, come and see this Jesus and believe in him. Do it this morning. That's response number one. For you that have never done that, today's the day to come and see. Here's the second response. For those of us that have already done that, here's what we need to do. What did Andrew do to his brother Peter? And what did Philip do to his friend Nathaniel? They went and grabbed their brother. They went and grabbed their friend and said, would you come and see? We found the Messiah. Those of us who are already Christians, we need to go to our workers, our co-workers, our friends, our family, those that don't know Jesus, and we need to go to them and say, listen, come and see. There's Jesus. He's the perfect Savior. He's a Lamb of God that can take away your sin. Would we be like Andrew and go find our brother? Would we be like Philip and go find our friend Nathaniel and bring them along and say, come and see what I found? Come and see. Will we be be bold in our faith to go find those that have not seen Jesus and introduce them to Jesus, invite them to Jesus, let them see Jesus through both our verbal testimony and through our life as we boldly share? You know, this whole passage of Scripture has been about seeing. Seeing which reminds me of the old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. 
and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Simple words, but profound. Would you do that this morning? I'm going to ask us all to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And when we do that, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, as the hymn says, the things of this world just kind of fade away, they grow dim. Because as we look at the glory and grace of our Savior, when we look Jesus in the eye through the scriptures and we, and we turn our eyes to Jesus, we are overwhelmed by his glory and his grace and the things of the world fade away. No matter where you are this morning, every single one of us needs to have our eyes on Jesus. Come and see. So let me ask you to bow your heads and let us turn our eyes upon Jesus. In the quietness of this moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. And then we're going to actually sing that hymn together. And it's a time to respond. You can respond publicly by coming to the front if you feel led to do that. You can respond where you're seated in the quietness of your chair. The thing that would be sad would be for you to leave this worship service and not have to done anything to respond. When the word of God is preached, it demands a response. When Jesus has been preached, it demands a response. So I'm calling us to turn our eyes upon him this morning. Let's go to him in prayer and then we'll sing this together. On you, We want to look full in your wonderful face. And Lord, we want the things of this earth to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. And Lord, my prayer is if there's anybody in this room this morning that has not trusted Jesus, has not trusted you for salvation, that today would be that day. The hour would be now. The opportune time is now. Lord, they've heard your voice in the scripture. They've had their gaze fixed towards you in the scripture. And now we trust, Holy Spirit, that you will do a work. May we all turn our eyes upon Jesus. Let's all stand together and let's sing this.